nice to have everyone here. Scott, are you, do you want to sit here or? There's two seats there. Um, uh, we're keeping that one for Gemma, that one there. Well, we should put an extension on this house, do you think? <laughs> oh, this is our first, um, our first learning of 2020. So, um, yeah, we, I'm really excited about our, always the new learning scheme that we start. And we've just finished God's Story, which I'm sure you will agree was amazing. And this year, we try to do God's Story every other year. And then the following year, we do something that is a bit more practical and a bit more, um, yeah, something for our daily lives. Not that God's Story isn't, because <laughs> it really is. But... Um, I heard a phrase the other day, the most important thing about our studying of the Bible is when we shut the Bible and walk out. You know, it's what we've learned and what we implement that's really important. I'm just hyperventilating a bit because I've been running. <laughs> right, I'm not, by the way, I'm not going to make any excuse. I'm going to make a lot of noise at one point to fill the potatoes up because we've got a lot of people for lunch. So I'm going to start boiling potatoes and there will be a bit of a noise at one point. Um, and you're all going to get really hungry because it's going to start to smell really nice. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not invited, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Just to make that clear. <laughs> Hospitality's next year. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just thought I'd read a couple of sections from um, the book Simplicity, Love and Justice, um, which I think this book, uh, the, the study has come out of the Wednesday... Um, house church have, have bought this and wanted to study it so um, the introduction has a couple of points that will be good to read we live in an extraordinary time in history when communication and technology are advancing rapidly medical science is achieving near miracles and consumer choice is at its highest yet global iniquity is at an extreme in light of this we have to ask ourselves the question that Micah asked what does the Lord require of me? In our world today, what does it mean to act justly and to love mercy? How do we walk humbly with our God? These are difficult questions that speak into every aspect of our lives and every decision that we make. So our faith demands that we work hard at exploring the answers. So the, the Micah verses, he has showed you, O oh people, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And that's what we want to know. <laughs> How do we do that stuff? How do we go out and reflect the kingdom in a way that is current, um, but also that digs into the wells of the ancient truths that God has set out for us? So um, we have got a fantastic list of people. Uh, yeah, you can sit there, no problem. You can have one. Um, We've got a fantastic list of speakers, absolutely amazing people. We start with Steve, we finish with Alan Emerson, and then in between are just people who we really feel reflect some of the truths that, um, that we're going to learn, people who we've seen live out these things. So we're not going to follow the book in order um, because we wanted to find people that um, we could you know, really attach that that truth too, you know, and just they, we know they live it and we had to go with when they were available. 
So um, we start with Mr. Morris, <laughs> who of course is a dear, dear friend of ours and someone who we love and someone who as a community I know that we really respect um, and he's going to share with us. But it, we can't not mention that we just happen to have our Turkish contingent with us today as well, which is really, really fantastic. And um, guys, we're so blessed just to have you even with us, honestly. We, we really love you and we're really glad that you're here too to be with us and uh, this is your family this is your family okay Steve I'd like <laughs> um, well uh, Scott I'm going to ask you to do the regulating on the heat or are you always cold though Jane can do the reg if it gets too hot we'll open those doors because I'm starting to feel warm already um Steve I'd like to pray for you please Father God, let's pray. Let's just just really turn our hearts towards God. Not just for this morning, but for this series, but for this um, to be open-hearted, to be soft-hearted towards God, to be willing to have our lives and minds and attitudes changed. Just offer ourselves up to God now. Father God, we thank you for Steve and Diana and we thank you um, for the model that they have um, lived before us and we thank you for them and we pray blessing over them as a family today. But God, we just ask right now that as Steve um, brings your word to us, God, that he will just have a sense of the Holy Spirit just descend upon him, God, that he will know that he's speaking and really sharp-edged words, God, that can really change our hearts. Um, and as he speaks, God, I just pray that um, we will be able to receive well even words that might be difficult for us to understand or difficult for us to swallow, God. I just pray that you will speak to our hearts. And God, I just pray for Steve as he speaks, God, that he will be replenished himself, that he will be challenged again, God, about how he lives and about how he honours you, Father. That he will be um, yeah, just reflecting back to you, but also receiving to from you as well. We ask it in your name. Amen. Um, it's really nice to be here. Thank you. Uh, it's lovely for you guys to welcome us in such a way. Um, for the first time in a long time, we only came from down the road, uh, in a sense, yeah, um, in that I don't know how many of you know, I think most of you will probably know that um, Diana and I and the family are now part of uh, Glo Glogen, Global Generation Church uh, in Ramsgate. Um, so I'm working for the church two days a week and then three days a week um, uh, working in business, um, doing some uh, consultancy work in business, so um, pitching and presentation coaching. Um, public speaking, if you like, public speaking, coaching, um, storytelling, coaching, and uh, team and leadership development stuff, um, which is great. Um, and we'll speak into some of what we're going to speak about today. Um, I, interestingly, this is probably the topic I'm asked to speak on the most, um, but the one I find the hardest um, in that 
in because of some of our story, which will be weaved in um, in and out of what we talk about, we've been asked to speak about money. Prob I've been asked to speak about money probably more uh, frequently than any other topic uh, in the whole of the Bible. <laughs> um, so uh, we are going to speak about money in the context of, of uh, chapter three. I think it's chapter three of the book um, that you've got, but kind of... Um, I will bring my. I will bring some teaching, and then we'll discuss. And then we'll, there are elements in which we'll flick in and out of that chapter, um, of course. In it, um, and the disclaimer I put is this: that the actual reason I'm asked probably to speak about money is twofold, um, and the first is um, because it was the real point at which um, my journey with following Jesus began, and it's probably hardest for me because it's the point of the most vulnerability I have to have in terms of my journey into the church and my constant one of my biggest wrestlings with following Jesus has always been about money it's always been about what to do with money how it works how money works how discipleship works and um, a lot of our story actually was based around me coming to the painful truth of the fact that I'd taken on wanting to own a house as an idol so, so our journey really to South Africa um, for us was built in this concept that I was constantly saving and building my life around the moment when I thought owning a three-bedroom house in Chafford 100, which is not far from here, um, would be that it would be kind of when we'd arrived in life. It would be the moment when everything was finally safe and secure. And then if only I could get the family in a three-bedroom house, they'll be okay, and then I can carry on doing the ministry stuff and can push on from there, and we'll be able to do these kingdom exploits. So for me, it was that point of actually, I'm often asked to speak into this because people think this is a real area of strength for us. The irony is that this has probably been an ongoing area of wrestling for us, and that's why people actually get the most out of asking us to speak about that because it strips us again and we have to prepare again. And, uh, and I have to ask all the questions I'm going to ask you. I kind of felt that I'd answered them a few years ago. And then you ask them again every year and you realize oh, we, we have to answer them again and again and again. Um, I don't think these questions have gone away from my discipleship. Um, they've, they've just needed to be asked year on year on year. Um, in terms of wrestling with it. So that's kind of a helpful disclaimer at the beginning that says, I really don't think I have lots of answers around Jesus, money, wealth, what it's like to have poverty and riches. Um, I, I, I just find that our life has often fluctuated between these two um, dynamics, even very recently. Um, and this could go in the realms of the kind of humble brag, so bear with me. Um, but we arrived back from South Africa on the 17th of December. One of the first things I had to do or was, was part of my work to do was to go with uh, Mike and Brian um, from 24-7 Prayer to America to do some coaching in America. So I was probably about a week into being back in the UK from the township in South Africa, and I got an upgrade all the way to first class on the aeroplane, which I know is a humble brag of me going, look at me, isn't that good? It wasn't because of any air miles or anything I'd done. It was just because of a random set of circumstances. And I sat there with all of the trappings of this booth on an aeroplane and thought, wow, I've come a long way in a few weeks in terms of the global wealth scale. Um, I'd gone from, from saying goodbye to my friends who live in shacks on a township 
to sitting in first class flying from London to Chicago um, and being asked if I wanted macaroons with my chocolate sundae. <laughs> uh, that, that is very much this kind of weird world that we've lived in. So we, even amongst the times when we, we weren't drawing a, a salary in the kind of standard metric of um, we worked and earned a salary from directly from that work, we experienced or, or had experiences of the world where we really got to see um, what it was like to, to see the best of, of what the best has to offer and then would frequently within days or weeks be into some of the most difficult and challenging circumstances. So Cape Town, I don't know if it still is, but when we first went out, was economically the most divided city on earth. So the top from the bottom of Cape Town, um, you can drive within 45 minutes, even probably 15 minutes, half an hour, and be on one of the luscious wine farms with million pound houses that would uh, cut their own in any place of the world would, would be desirable. And within half an hour, you can drive and, uh, and sit with someone in what looks like really a garden shed with no running water, no electricity, family of five, um, trying to make a plan for existence just simply for that day. So constantly we were we were in this dynamic of crossing the road and trying to understand this interplay between riches and, and wealth and how they hold together. And the parable I've often found most helpful is the parable of the rich fool, um, which is if you want to follow in Luke chapter 12. I, I am impressed that you guys do learning for like an hour and a half. Um, so that gives me freedom to go down a few rabbit holes uh, and uh, we'll look at a couple of different parables or teachings of Jesus and then um, at points when I think you're going to go to sleep we'll either turn the heating off and open a door <laughs> or we'll do a discussion question um, but um, I have found reflecting on this uh, parable really really helpful for me in terms of thinking a lot around um, money uh, wealth and and my position in terms of the global wealth scale and what that looks like. So the parable of the rich fool is uh, Luke chapter 12 from verse 13. It says this, someone in the crowd said to him, this is Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Very much as Jesus does, we could stop there and we could be done for the morning, effectively. Um, just on that one question alone, uh, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I've got no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tell tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. And um, we'll, we'll go on uh, in a moment uh, in terms of what Jesus then says afterwards and, and the links that he makes back um, to this parable. The context here is found in Deuteronomy 21, which is established that in inheritance, the older sons would get a double portion of an inheritance. So the inheritance division wasn't the same that we would assume in terms of I have three children. We expect that when 
Diana and I pass away. My money, if I pass first, God willing, I will pass first. Um, then Diana will receive everything. And then Diana, when she passes into glory quietly in her sleep at 105 or whatever happens, <laughs> then, you know, it, it, it goes, it goes kind of Caleb gets a third, Isabella gets a third. Don't get too excited, boy. I see you smiling already. <laughs> there's a different parable for that, I can tell you that. And, uh, and Hannah Rose gets a third. You know, there's a go third, third, third. There's, there's not this, this division here. Um, what is happening is the, the older son gets double, um, portion. So the assumption from commentators who are who are seeing this is when someone then is coming and saying, "Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me." There's something gone on here in terms of the dynamic around the inheritance. There's there's a complaint, or there's at least a, a, a need for a rabbi to kind of interject. And often that would happen. Rabbis would be invited in to speak into this situation. What should we do with the family money? What should we do with the family wealth? How should it be divided? Um, others would, would make the obvious connotation here, other commentators, and say there's clearly some sort of family dispute or argument going on here. Um, but obviously we're reading that into to the context here. Um, however, in the, in the story that Jesus uh, illustrates, there's something that we mustn't miss um, uh, straight away from the bat, and that is look at the language of which is given, and we're told of the man who is building the barns. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. He is a very clear default position of what he believes around the wealth that he's accruing and the monies that he's got. And that is, I plan for myself what I shall do with my stuff that I've been responsible for, that I've, I've uh, created and that I will have to now store for myself. When that comes, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build bigger ones. There I will store my grain and my goods and I'll say to myself, You've got plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. It's very, very obvious from the setup of the parable that, that what's being pointed out is that with money, it's very, very easy to just simply have selfish ambition. It's very easy to just almost live in a little island. It's even easier in the UK, where most of us live, um, now to to have an individualistic view of what we do with our wealth and how we'll do it and we come to a study like this and say i'm going to figure out what the bible would say about the money that i have and i will decide then what i need to do with it in line with the scriptures i think one of the first things we must recognize is one of the reasons that the man who's building these barns gets himself in trouble is because he thought to himself what shall i do i've got no place to store my crops his attitude is simply one of selfish ambition. And I, and I would question much of what we, we really like a, an artist called Matthew Mole. He's a South African singer-songwriter. He's very well known. Um, he's mainstream, he's a mainstream artist. He doesn't, oh, this is a totally different debate, but he doesn't necessarily, Ruti would speak into this better than me. He doesn't necessarily write Christian music. He just writes music. Um, but his music, if you are a Christian, you can hear all of the themes are completely infused with his understanding of the gospel. And um, he, I was listening to it before as I was preparing this. He writes a song and, and the lines of the song always stick out to me. This He says, um, that there's a, your heart is in a love affair with the world and there's a war every time you walk out of your door. 
So he sings like, there's a war, I won't sing, <laughs> but there's a war when you're walking out your door because your heart is having a love affair with the world. And much, I believe, of what said here, he sums up in that sum to me. I would often drive around and wrestle with this concept of how much really I just, my lens for the world, my lens for earning, my lens for wealth is simply in this wrestling of the fact that my heart is in this love affair with the world. My heart is in this love affair with possessions. My heart is in this love affair with things that I believe will help me. Um, so I, I had an interesting uh, start with the UK because we came back into the UK just before Christmas. I, in somewhere, in my mind, I thought it was a good idea to move a family of five before Christmas, to be at home for Christmas. And the debate, Diana kept saying, no, it's probably better that we just take Christmas overseas and come back home in the new year. And I kept saying, no, we've missed too many Christmases already. We're going to come back in for Christmas. What neither of us thought through, in truth, we really thought about ourselves and how it would work for the family. What we didn't think through is that if you come back into Christmas in the UK, you come back into the consumer... Uh, context almost immediately and you have to navigate your way around it um, what happened is uh, that I received my 30-day offer to join Amazon Prime as probably everybody else who wasn't part of Amazon Prime received just before Christmas because obviously you jump onto Prime for your 30 days you do your Christmas stuff on Prime you then forget to either cancel it or you like it and you renew it and you stay on and you do it. So immediately we came into this context of the UK of Christmas, um, Amazon Prime uh, and, and a totally new framework, if you like, for us to figure out how everybody does everything now. Um, because we didn't, ha we, we probably could have done that, um, but we didn't have access to that. But what South Africa has done to us is internet shopping isn't really that active in South Africa, certainly not to the context that it is here. Um, our bank account did not actually work on the internet at all in South Africa, so we couldn't really buy anything on the internet. Our internet wasn't particularly very good, so you couldn't watch and consume anywhere near the context of TV. Like, it would very often just fall off. Um, you wouldn't be able to watch there. Also, the cookies and the driving of traffic to the account, I hadn't realized until I came into the UK, literally, almost from the moment the cookies off of the internet figured out that I was back in the UK, I kid you not, my spam email traffic probably went up tenfold. So, so literally, from the moment, I, and from the moment I made my first Amazon purchase to prepare for Christmas, the amount of notifications, pushes, and adverts that went to me probably, I'd love to know how much they went up. I would say conservatively, they went up tenfold. The, I then realized the amount of adverts that you're exposed to, is it the sa same, yeah, same, did you say, from Turkey, is it the same? Or about a thousand percent, yeah. Uh, like, uh, and, and I would say just then getting onto public transport, getting onto internet that runs work, you suddenly, re I was driving to work m almost every single day. I was driving to work having seen absolutely no physical billboard adverts, not having a newspaper at all. Um, and so I could easily go my day without seeing any advertising whatsoever. And suddenly, it, honestly, it was like if you've been off sugar and you can smell sugar everywhere, <laughs> it was suddenly like, Oh my goodness. And I, and I realized that I'd, I'd start to, I'd, I'd be like, oh, uh, 
I, I, I don't have wireless headphones. Like, I, don't, I don't have wireless headphones. Like, my headphones are only wired. Like, I've only got wired headphones. Like, <laughs> I need, and I, 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 maybe I need wireless headphones. And then, <laughs> and then you, go, you go into Amazon and you put wireless headphones and suddenly, and then Facebook tells me I need wireless headphones because it's all linked, right? So wireless, and then, and then Diana is convinced our phone listens to us and you all are as well, right? Uh, yeah, right. You're convinced your phone listens. In five years' time, we know we're going to find out somewhere that our phones were listening to us. Because, right. She, so she will say, I was talking about brown pillows. And now there's an advert for brown pillows. on my. She's like, how do they know? I've not typed this anywhere. They know I want brown pillows. That, that actually, and we've realised, this is my loop in terms of coming afresh into this, that the UK works on we consume for comfort and for convenience. So everything will be geared towards, you can buy a fix for that, and the fix will either fit into two categories. It will either make me comfortable or it will aid for convenience. So they're applying on two, two things. I either want more time or I want something to fill that more time that I've just got in my life. Right. So and neither of them seem to me to work because everybody complains about not having any time, even though they've got t enough time saving devices in and around their world to give themselves at least an extra three hours of the. But what we do with the three hours of the day is shop for more things that will save us more time or or we consume entertainment at, at two because we actually now because we've been so stressed and we needed all those stress saving devices we then consume to buy ourselves the comfort that we've been looking for um to 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 block out so obviously we we and just a little check in my heart just came in terms of obviously the first few times you order something and it invites that it arrives the next day on time no one steals it from your doorstep you know that kind of like you feel like this is really good this is really exciting i can get anything and, and and i can do it but there are some of course obvious problems to just being able to click and and get something delivered the very next day to my house there are obvious problems in terms of the way i consume the way i think whether actually uh, i've got a handle on my own selfish ambition I've got a handle on what I really need and what I really want and, and the direction that, that I'm going in um, in terms of using my money. And the, the hard truth here that we're given is that the circumstances he was put in, simply all they did, all the barns and the, the good crop did was reveal his heart. That's all it served. The, the purpose of the whole thing that was just served up to reveal his heart and in many ways, I'm often questioned, and, and I often question myself, does the direction of my money reveal the health of my heart? And if it does, what does it say about the health of my heart? So if I took a stock of my bank account at the end of every single month, and I weighed it up, and someone had to say, what barns is Steve building? What is he building? What's he, the barns in this context being the analogy like, where is his focus? Where, how is he stuck? Where's his life heading? What is he doing with it? What is he doing with his money? Where is he putting all his effort and his energy? I, and, and I think this is, I'll get on to, I'll talk about that later actually. And I think that that context then has often challenged me as to say to myself, if someone looked at the bank account I, I, I own in my name and in Diana's name, if someone looked at our joint bank account, would it be obvious to them that we follow Jesus? They have no other information about me. They're just literally looking through my bank account, which for many of us, even the thought of that is very uncomfortable. 
We're very individualistic. Many of us wouldn't even tell our parents how much we earn. Or, or our friends. We wouldn't, I grew up in that context. You don't tell anybody what you earn. You just keep it to yourself. You it's on a need-to-know basis. And the need-to-know is you don't need to know. <laughs> that was how I grew up in, in and around this. And, uh, and, and my understanding and, and my context of it is from here would, would just be that simple challenge to you if all I had was your bank account to go off. If I was trying to put you... Uh, on trial for being a Christian, and one of the evidence I want to bring against you is, is it's evidently clear by his bank account that he's a Christian. Look, look at all of his transactions. Look at the way he lives his life. And they can go through, underscore, underline, look, here, here, here. I'm not, I, I really, it doesn't really worry me what direction your money goes in, because it does and it doesn't. What I mean by that is I'm not prescribing where you need to place your money. I'm just asking you a question above that, I'm saying the flow of how you decide to give, how you decide to live, would it be evident that you follow Jesus just simply based on that alone is a question and a check I often ask myself. And to be honest, coming into the UK, I found it incredibly challenging and difficult to go against the flow. We must understand that people pay millions of pounds per day, per week to feed you adverts you are part of a very sophisticated system that literally wants you to consume. It wants you to buy and it wants you to, 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 um, to continue to keep yourself comfortable, to continue to keep convenience in your life, to continue to keep you consuming and keep you building barns. And one of the questions we must ask ourselves is, you know, where do I, where, where, what is the flow of my finance each month? What does that say about the state of my heart? And is it evident from the flow of where my finance is going that I follow Jesus? Um, this is why it's such a great topic to speak about money. Everybody goes, oh, great. <laughs> yeah, cheers. Um, uh, and I feel the same. I look at it and I feel the same. And I, and I feel uncomfortable to talk about it. But Jesus seemingly doesn't. So we, we, we have to go there and we have to pull o it over and think about it. The second thing it seems clear to me is that Jesus isn't... In, in each example, Jesus doesn't remain uh, fixed in trying to give anybody a formula. He doesn't seem fixed in trying to give people a formula that says, but if you can do X, Y, and Z, um, you will be fine, and, and that's this conversation over. He, he seems to be concerned with our stewardship as opposed to giving, and I'll talk more about the formula kind of concept later, but it seems to me that the scripture, um, and it seems to me that the chapter that was encouraging us to think about this broad view of stewardship. How do I steward my resources well? How do I steward the time I've been given? You're having someone come in and talk to you about time. How do I uh, steward the resources that I've been given, the money? How do I steward that, uh, the gifts that I've got? How do I steward all of that that I've been given? I'm, responsibility, I'm responsible for stewarding. Here's the interesting thing that, for me, this hit home for me around how I thought around my work. Okay? So it, it became very easy for me when I was in South Africa to steward the gifts that I've been given because I always viewed them as gifts. So we lived in such a way that we, we couldn't earn an income in South Africa because our visas were established that we were volunteers. Therefore, by default, everything we lived off was gifted to us. If something is gifted to you, it's quite easy to steward because you always see it as a gift. 
So it's easy, in some senses, it's easy come, easy go, in some senses, because all you're being asked to do is to make sure that you've got an integrity and a, and, a, and a conduit for that. You actually even have to let other people look in at what you're doing and how you're doing it because of the way you're living. You're trying to steward your resources. You can, to a certain extent, have an open hand because what's been given into your right hand can be given out in your left hand. Um, and you are flowing those resources to sustain your family, yes, and to sustain the ministry that you're on. And, and then you just ask questions. Is this good? Would this be a good steward of those funds? And that doesn't mean you, lots of people would f uh, throw the phrase around in South Africa, oh, that person has a poverty mindset. That person has a poverty mindset. I've heard this phrase loads. Oh, they, he or she, they have a poverty mindset. They so what they're trying to say, I don't think it's a very helpful phrase. What they're trying to say is that um, they, they equally couldn't, they won't find joy in finance. Um, they won't see the joy that it can bring and they won't steward it to bring joy and life. They always view finance with a negative uh, connotation. Both Richard Foster and the book that you're studying would say that the qualities of money can be both light and dark. They can bring great blessing, um, but they can bring enormous challenge and uh, danger into our discipleship. Um, often the question I would, I would uh, wrestle with is, is this a good use of the funds? Sometimes, honestly, a very good use of the funds that we were being given um, would be to take the family on holiday. It's a good use of funds right now because if we don't, we, w we won't steward our ministry well because we're not resting well. There's not joy here. There's not. So I'm trying to give that as an example just because you ask a different question often when you're stewarding funds in the way we were asked to. So I thought, why did I struggle so much when I worked, even though I work, I'm working? Why did I have these delineations? And the delineation I used to make was, well, I've earned that money before. I worked for that. So did I still work in South Africa? Yeah, I worked a 40-hour week. I worked as a volunteer as I worked for the organization. But my attitude towards work very much changed because I didn't see work as the place I went for a transaction that they gave me the finance for the hours that I'd been working. I just, I just, view, I just viewed it as though the, the money that's coming in does and doesn't align with the work that I'm doing, i.e. people wouldn't wouldn't have supported us on mission if all I was doing was sunbathing in Camps Bay. I understand that. Um, but, but people weren't saying, Steve, we're really pleased you did a 40-hour week and here's a gift for your 40-hour week. Just let us know if you, ever, if you ever only complete 20 or if you do 60, we'll give you overtime next month. It, it, it didn't work in that way it, at all. <laughs> it didn't work in that concept at all. But, but so something about work, and I use the term around work very, very broadly. So my, my, my idea of work went much, much broader because actually it was very humbling for me because I was never anything more than a volunteer the whole time I was there. So some of us, our identity is wrapped up in our work. So I use the term broadly for work as in homemaker, um, someone who volunteers at church, someone who I really work for me. And, and this context of work, which again is a later thing, is really the... the, the, the Work for me was the purpose that got me out of bed in the morning and, 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 and gave me something in the day that was a creative outlet, that was a use of my time, that was a use of my energy that I could see was really, broadly speaking, d uh, done unto the Lord. 
Like I was, I was, I was conducting my day as I was done to the Lord. It gave me a total different view of the money. It meant I could be much easier to steward the money. However, so quickly do I fall back into the default when I come to the UK that oh no no I I earned this money so I get to decide what I can do with it. How did you? I went to work. I went to the city. I went to X business. I did. I consulted for X amount of hours. They paid me X. It's now absolutely my right to decide what to do with that money. The challenge for me is, will I have the same stewardship attitude that says, I, w- I went to work, I went with open hands, in a sense, I had open hands to now steward the money that is coming in and out. I'll, I'll go to God first and ask him, how do I steward this? How do I steward this well? That that you've gifted to me now, how do I steward it? How do I direct my resources in such a way? I, th- I think we seek formula when we want to get off the hook. Here's my point. We just seek a formula when we want to get... Lots of people just say to me, I, I, I don't like talking to you about money because you don't just give me a clear answer. Just give me a clear answer. Just tell me how, what percentage you think is right, whether you do or you don't believe in tithing, whether you should give to this, you should give to that. Just tell me what I should do and we can get this thing done and then we can go and talk about something else in the scriptures. I don't see that in Jesus. I see Jesus just literally um, interested in the direction of people's hearts and, them, and, and in the stewardship of their resources. How then would I, would I invite you to view your stewardship? I think I've come to the place where you have to think through what you believe you do with your time and your energy and your efforts and, and your work, volunteering, homemaking, life. And I think you also need to steer and and stir up what you really believe about eternity. What you really believe about eternity. And I would ask you the same question. What does the use of your resources say about what you believe is going to happen to you when you die? So I think there is, if I've understood this parable correctly, a rebuke here because the parable of the rich fool the fact that he's called a fool and god says to him you fool this very night your life will be demanded for you then who will get what you have prepared for yourself this is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards god i think where where what's being pointedly uh, highlighted is that in the example the rich fool has absolutely no concept of eternity and the way he is living and the way he is building and the way he is saving and the way he is storing shows that his mindset is you must get rich here or you must die trying. That, that, that to me highlights the exact danger of money that, that we're going to talk about in a minute in that money can become an idol. It's not neutral. M- money isn't neutral. It's not just transactional and neutral. What Jesus is, is highlighting is clearly that the way he has driven his money and the way he spent his money has highlighted that he had no, no vision for eternity, no concept of what eternity um, could look like. How would, I, uh, how would I go about kind of addressing that is I, I, I really then have to reflect and ask myself honestly um, to what end I believe I'll spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. To, to what end do I really believe that's true? That will drive a number of things in the church, not just what you do with your money. But I, I think sometimes uh, people don't give to churches broadly, and this isn't a comment on you. Um, I think 
this happened last week when I was speaking on money uh, on a boat and just uh, people resonated with it, um, is that I said, people, people want to give, but they often don't give because they don't see vision in what they're trying to give to. So where no vision is set, people will actually begin to become very complacent around giving because they have no sense of urgency or eternity into what they're giving to. When people capture something that's, oh wow, this is actually part of something far bigger, this is part of something that will, will have uh, consequences for eternity, people begin to, to capture concepts of something they can give into and give to. Equally, um, in your own life, we can live as though we really don't believe that we're going to heaven and heaven is really, you know, uh, 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 something, a destination for us, a partnership for us, uh, a place for us where we're going to be with Jesus in that we can live as though really all that counts is that I get rich or I die trying here, that, that I really make it here, that I really make it financially, that I leave a legacy. That I, leave. I say this often, someone once said to me, right when we were in the heart of what God was doing to propel us out to South Africa. So we were giving money away. We were getting money come back in. We were giving money away. There was money coming and going. Someone said to me, Steve, you just need to be really careful. Out of good purposes, motivation, they said you need to be really careful in the way that you're living at the moment because please remember, it's not bad to leave an inheritance for your son. And I said, oh, man. Like I thought, I, I smiled. Like uh, most of the time, if I don't know what to say to you, I just smile and say, thanks. I'll think about, you know, thank you. <laughs> like I was it. And as I drove away and as I, and as I thought about what this person was saying and as I thought about it, I, I thought the inheritance that I want to leave my son is very different from the bricks and mortar that you are assuming that I want to leave my son. Right. My mindset was very different because my view on eternity was very different. I didn't think it would be great if on the day I die, my son gets given the keys to a three bed house in Chavit hundred that may or may not need rewiring and plastering and plumbing you know and he says isn't it great mum and dad were sensible stewards and they get I don't particularly have a problem with that model it's just if he gets that and hasn't inherited any stories of the kingdom and any view that life is worth more than bricks and mortar and any concept of the fact that where I've gone I couldn't take any of that with me then I've missed the boat I've missed the job in terms of what I've handed on to my son. I've missed the job. Um, that is, that, is that to say that we strip everything bare? We have no joy. We have no parties. We have no spending. We have no travel. No, absolutely not. This is that, that, that interplay here between uh, 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 riches and, 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 and poverty. There is this interplay in terms of what we're being asked here. I think if you can steward money as a blessing, 100% of your income, if you can steward it as a blessing, the irony is, it seems to me, people that steward really well are far more happier than people that chase after formulas. People that simply say each month, 100% of this is a gift from God, and we will view it as that, and we'll ask how we can best steward our finances, seem to be me to me to be far more released than those who say, I'm just going to keep building barns, I'm going to keep building barns. And if you keep pestering me, I'll give you some grain, but I'm going to keep building barns. The question we must ask ourselves is, when we look at our bank accounts and when we look at our wider decisions, what is that saying about our view of eternity? What is it saying about our concept of where we're going? What is it saying? So, I, you know, of course this raises loads of questions that I can't answer in terms of people then, and I understand you all come from very different backgrounds when it comes to money, very different cultures when it comes to money. You come from, some of you will be baby boomers 
who, who, and some of you will be coming through as millennials, and the view of a baby boomer who sat on a property that went up in value to now a millennial who wishes it had never gone up in value because they feel like they can never now afford it are totally different. I get that. The view on pension as to whether you're 21 or 51, your view on pensions are totally different because of your life phases. The 51-year-old would probably say to the 21-year-old, start now, you know? The 21-year-old says to the 51-year-old, like, I'm not even thinking about it now. Um, I understand that, and, but the fear, uh, I think fear must be raised as a, as a, as a huge uh, blocker here to making any of these decisions. I often find people run, it's almost like people immediately when we start to talk about it, run and say to me, oh, you surely don't mean that we shouldn't be sensible and be planning for the future. Are you sure? It's okay for you, Steve. Like, we, they, it's this kind of, yeah, okay, you guys gave all your money. You're surely not asking us to go and give away all our money. You're surely not asking us not to plan for pitch. And the first question I got last week in the Q&A when we talked about money is, what do you, what's your view then on sensible financial planning and pensions? That's a great question. <laughs> you end up like, that's a very broad question. Uh, and there, and um, for, for the record, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that financial planning and pensions are a bad idea, no? Am I saying everybody needs to give all of their money away to the poor, no? Does Jesus use different, we'll see in a moment when we go to some different parables that Jesus seems to act differently to different circumstances that are going there. What I wonder is though, if we come first to those questions, would that maybe reveal to you where your barn runs the risk of being? If the first thing I think about when I think about what I can do to steward my resources is, oh man, like, but what about pension? What about that? Somewhere in me, there is a fear that I won't have enough. There is, otherwise that wouldn't be my first question. There is a fear of lack. I, there's something in me, and, I, and, and, I, and I've wrestled with this in myself, that my, my fear around security was around a fear of lack. Which is why before we went to South Africa, we constantly came to the next bit and why Jesus goes to the next bit. Then Jesus says to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life and what you will eat or your body and what you'll wear. Life is about more than food and the body about more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies glow, grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, again, the view of eternity, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things. And your father knows that you need them. This isn't a regard that God doesn't know that you need it. This isn't a way of living that says, it's okay for you because you're young, you're full of enthusiasm for Jesus now, just wait until you do hit 55, Steve, and you do start worrying about where it's going to come from then. It doesn't seem, it, 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 there's a, a great understanding of saying, no, no, I understand that then is very important. I understand that then is very important. But my first point of default when it comes to it is to come before God and say, you know what I need even before I ask for it. You know what I'll need when I'm at this age, when I'm at that phase, when I'm here, when I'm there, when I'm living here, when I'm living there. How then should I steward my resources? And to be honest, I don't think there's a one size fits all. 
I, I can't say to you, oh, so this is the, the godly principle for this, this, and this. I honestly think that wherever you might ask the question would reveal to you where the danger of your barn might be placed. And the danger where my barn might be placed was, I always used to think, if only I could just own a house, everything else would fall into place. If only I could just own a house, everything. For other people, that would never be the risk of their barn. Some people are gifted houses very young. So their barn isn't a house. It's like, just for me, I'm just gonna, I just ask you, like, if only I could get the stable income, then it would be, I'd be fine. If only I could just get the second car. If only I could just get, if only I can get this amount in my pension pot, then I'm totally get. I think that that question simply reveals where the risk of your barn would be and then take that down one layer. That is what you put on the table before Jesus and, 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 and God in prayer and say, God, your word says you're going to provide for me from the, from the very... Fi- I can give you an example. When David and Kate were about to move into our flat, I stripped the kitchen. I stripped the kitchen and all I wanted to do was I wanted to fit the... Um, I wanted to refit the sink. And the moment I, everybody was away, I think Diana was in Colombia, if I remember rightly, and I just thought, I'm going to do this DIY. I'm going to strip the kitchen sink and make sure that I fitted the new cupboard. When I pulled it out, I realized that I'm not very good at DIY. The leak had gone on for long enough that the cupboard was rotten. So when you are in a new build flat, I don't know if any of you have lived in a new build flat, but because everything's made out of plasterboard and like Ikea, if you move one thing, you generally have to move about four things because they're all linked to each other. And as soon as you pull out one thing, you almost automatically break the thing that's next to it and it goes there. So, so this went on for a few days of me pulling and breaking and uh, thinking. And then eventually, after a few hours, days of pulling and breaking and re-looking at it, I sent Diana a picture of me sitting in the kitchen that had been totally stripped back to pipe with absolutely every single thing removed from the kitchen. And I was like, we're just about to move to South Africa. Like, what on earth do I do in terms of this kitchen? I don't have the money to fix this and I've just totally dismantled it. What do I do? So so this for me plays right into my point of insecurity. I don't want to spend the money because I don't want to... People that know me, know Diana knows, I'm the worst person to shop with. I take about four times as long to spend than anybody else does. Um, and I was like, I don't want to spend because it m- will make an insecurity here for me. And I felt God very clearly say to me, I felt God say to me, if you don't fix this, you are not giving your, brother in, your brother-in-law or your sister-in-law a flat with any integrity. I, to be honest with you, David, close your ears. I just wanted to patch it with the cheapest stuff I could find <laughs> and get it working. <laughs> I don't really care what goes in here. I'm not going to live here. I just need to patch this thing up, get to South Africa and go, surely God, you don't mean I've got to fix. And I felt God say, no, you need to fix this in the way you would fix this for your family. Otherwise, you're not giving any integrity. Why would I spend all all this money? It was about one and a half thousand pounds at that time. So why would I spend one and a half thousand, two thousand pounds, three, which could be three thousand pounds on this kitchen and fit this whole thing um, if I'm not going to live here? Uh, and and not going to benefit from any of it. Um, and eventually someone's just going to rent it, whether them or somebody else, and break it again anyway, and I'll have to pay for it again anyway. And I felt God literally just say to me, you need to do this with integrity, and you need to do this in exactly the same way that you would do it for your family. So we did. I fitted it, got all new stuff, fitted a nice kitchen. It was a nice kitchen, wasn't it? Fitted a nice kitchen, put a new kitchen in, did it myself. Someone helped me. People came to think. And I, and I st- remember, because you get, you know, I've got, 
accounts open, cards open, you're trying to pay for everything and not wonder where it's going to come from. I got, I remember doing it and then looking at it at the end and thinking, this is amazing. I've done an amazing kitchen for someone else. This is brilliant. Looks great. Everybody's really happy with it. It's really nice. But I remember just thinking, I have no idea why I've just spent all this money and and lived, you know, pouring into this and stewarding in it in this way. And at the end of the week, I got a call um, from the student loan company. I said, oh, Mr. Morris? I said, yeah. I said, this is a student loan company. Like, no one enjoys a call from the student loan company. Okay. Um, I said, oh, that's weird, because um, we've paid off our student loans. She said, yes, Mr. Morris, you've paid off your student loans. Um, I'm actually just calling you um, with regards to your loan. I said, okay, is there a problem? Um, she said, well, no, it's not necessarily a problem. She said, what happened is your work were, were, had made an administrational error, and they'd been overpaying your loan for the last three years. So they've been taking money from you that they shouldn't have been and they've been overpaying. And it actually what's happened is not only have you paid off your loan, but you've paid back too much. And, and I'm just calling you for your bank details because we're about to make a refund. Um, I said, oh, that's good. How much is it that you're refunding? Oh, it's about, um, oh, it's 1,551 pounds <laughs> on the Friday of the week that we're doing it. Why do I say that? It's because in this point of stewardship, I would learned a big lesson that week. I learned a big lesson that week in that God knows what you need before you even utter the need. He was working on it two years with an administrational error in advance of a sink that probably hadn't, probably had started leaking then, maybe. Maybe <laughs> when I go to heaven, Jesus will reveal to me, listen, the leak started then, two years ago. You're so slack that you didn't pick it up, but don't worry, we were covering you from then until the point when you realized. But, you know, and, and I realized that in for most of our, uh, my, our us, it will look totally different. And I can't give you a rule of what it will look like. But I think we can work on principles. And the principle I work on is not what percentage of this do I give away. What I work on is what percentage of this do Diana and I realistically need to keep. It's a very different mindset. What do Diana and I realistically need to keep? Um, in what areas of my life do I really need to lease, do I need to release money? Often for me, it's into the family or into our world um, to really bring joy and, and to, to, to make life work and to, to do things well and not to have a fear of spending or a fear of, of, of money. And what areas of our life can we be radically generous? I think the, the, the antidote to selfish ambition is radical generosity. I think when you can live in your life in such a way, when we live church life in such a way, that we uh, are radically generous, it shifts the prevailing atmosphere um, and the prevailing attitude of the society that we live in. So radical generosity is always the antidote to selfish ambition. It's always, it has to be. So we live in such a way that we have tried even to be generous when it hurts, even to be generous to the point where, where we know well, it's going to hurt if we do that. In fact, probably some of our biggest wins have been found in the context of where we've given when it really hurt. That week, it hurt to give into that at that time. It hurt. It was a, uh, it was a pain financially. It was a pain time-wise. It was a pain uh, for a number of reasons um, to do it in the way that we did it. But some of our biggest wins are when we've realized that actually, if we, if we sometimes can turn our face towards others and be radically generous, it, it, it really uh, has that, that 
uh, view of eternity. My, it says, I don't live just to make to get rich or die trying. I don't live just to add to my life. I don't live just to be about me. I don't have this attitude of, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to live to store my crops. The, uh, the opposite attitude is, I, uh, I, thought, I thought to myself, before God, what shall I do with the resources that I've been gifted with? Where can I invest them? And what would I do to bring about the most fruit for the kingdom? It's a very different attitude to say to us. As a church, I would say that you have been blessed with a beautiful opportunity in the way your structure is established. What your structure should enable when it works really well is that you can be far more generous as a church than many other churches can't be. Because many other churches have to direct much of their giving into keeping their buildings sustained and, and, and sustainable and into uh, keeping the nuts and bolts of where they meet. Um, I mean, in, you know, you, you, we only need to look at the stereotype, um, how much does the average church roof cost nowadays to know that it's multiple tens of thousands to put a roof on a church. Because of your very structure and nature, you should be known as a community that's radically generous. Because you, you will have amongst you the resources to be able to say as a community, we've chosen to do the majority of our journey in houses as we've met this morning. What can that then release to be able to be released into the community that we're a part of? The church that we are, are now a part of, it, one of the first weeks we got there, you do something similar um, on Christmas, they had taken a Christmas offering. So 200 people, 250 people had raised £5,000 to put together Christmas Day hampers for people in the community. And every hamper was for a needy, broadly speaking, and a family with needs in the community. And it had everything they would need for Christmas Day. The thing that was most impressive for me about it was it, it almost looked like a hamper that was from Fortland and Mason's. It, it didn't, it, they didn't go and get like Tesco value spuds, like a cheap packet of biscuits, uh, a couple of crackers that have got a plastic toy that's no good to man or beast. Like they, just, they didn't do that. They went out and said, what's the best turkey we can find? Like what's the best biscuits we can get? What would make this family's meal extravagantly generous for Christmas day? And, and of 250 people, they put together 500 hampers. 5,000 pound, it's quite impressive when you, when you hold that. And then when you see a chain of people putting it together at the end of a church service, for me, when church ends with the packing of hampers to be radically generous to people that we're working with in the community, it, it really does say something. It marks out something. And I think that often we, we get stuck in a rut in terms of like, oh, but we don't have money. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to... In, instead of actually taking the lid off and saying, what would radical vision look like for us? What would a radical vision of generosity look like for us? What would it look like? Instead of building empires, we had the attitude of stewards. What would it look like if we had selfish... Instead of selfish ambition, we had an attitude of radical generosity. And then lastly, before we discuss a few of these points, and I don't mind doing a QA. and a um, as long as you don't ask me too many hard questions, um, that's fine, um, uh, is that we must be very, very clear that money isn't neutral. It's not just transactional. Jesus uses the Aramaic term mammon to refer to wealth. He's giving it a personal and spiritual character. 
That character is a rival God. That's Richard Foster in the book Money, Sex and Power. When Jesus uses the Aramaic term mammon to refer to wealth, he's giving it a personal and spiritual character. It is a rival God. You must know that when you come to money, when you come to an attitude of wealth, when you come to this area of our bank account, when we, when we spend our money, and there's some practical ways we've, we've adopted uh, to, to resist this, Diana and I. We've, we've, since we've been married, we've never owned a credit card. We cut it up the day we were married. We determined never to live on what we didn't have. Other than a mortgage, we determined never to live on what we didn't have. Has it been a pain? Yes. Does it cost me more when I hire a car? Yes. Would I want to change it? Yes. Will I? I don't know, not sure. It's really worked well as a principle so far. When something goes into our Amazon Prime, where does it sit? It sits in the basket for a week. Put it in the basket first. Don't just click through and get it delivered together. Put it in the basket, review it all at the moment and there, and it gives you a week's window. And I guarantee you, when you review your basket, there are things you delete that you would never send back the next day. When it comes the next day, you don't send it back. But when you review it in the bath, because you think, I can't be bothered. Who can be bothered to go to the post office and send it back? And they know that. They know you can't be bothered to do that. That's why they do it, right? But if it sits in the basket for a week, you end up reviewing it and, uh, and, and, you, and you take, take a stock of, of what you do um, with it before, before you spend it. Money that you spend on a card, you feel far less than money you give physical cash over for. So if you want to start to redistribute some of your money, the, the hint that is given is you should take that physical amount of money and put it into an envelope. And that envelope should be listed petrol, should be listed um, shopping, that thing. You take your, you physically put it in there because when you spend on a card or when you spend on the internet, you actually don't feel it. You don't physically feel it and you don't emotionally feel it. When you, when you go to spend 69.99 and you take 70 pounds out of the clothing budget and you go and spend it on shoes, you see what else is left in the envelope for the rest of the month. When you click and collect online, 69.99, it just goes off, goes off from somewhere. Caleb couldn't get his head around it. He's, he can't understand. He says, so the money you get from work, where goes on that card and the card is where? In the bank. Okay, so they pay you, you so, so, and he, he will say stuff to me like, can't you just buy that on the, on the card? Like on the card one, like as if the card never runs out, you know? Because the card on the internet never seems to run out, even mentally, Tim. Whereas if he goes to the shop with two pound in his hand, he knows it runs out. So there's a, there's, there are some, some ways you can do this practically. The deeper, the deeper question is, how much for you is money an idol in your life? How much is it dictating what you're doing, where you're doing it, how you're doing it? Because let's be clear um, that at the end of this, we are told, do not be afraid, little flock. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief can come near, no moth can destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the, the warning that's given here is, be aware this isn't transactionally neutral, this can become an idol and it can dictate where your heart will be driven to. It can fully dictate where your heart will be driven to what, uh, and it can become a rival God in your life. I've become acutely aware that money and the pursuit of money and the pursuit of wealth can dictate how I, I, I live my life and, how, and what I chase after. The strange thing that South Africa taught me is that's not just a problem for the rich. That money can become an idol for the poor. 
I felt so uncomfortable saying it at first. I, it wasn't my de my default was well. I'm here to help you. Globally speaking, I'm rich. Um, and that honestly, when you get up close and uncomfortably close to uh, communities that live well below the poverty line, you will realise that money can be some of the most unhelp money can be one of the most unhelpful things that flows into a community. Just pure money flowing into a community can be one of the most unhelpful things that happen. It can create the most division. It can create the most mistrust. It can create huge debate. Argue, it can create riots. It can, the influence of money that can go into a community. Why? Because money can become an idol for both the rich and the poor. The poor, and when we feel poor, we can sit there and just think, if only I had money, if only I had money, if only I had that, if only I had this, if only I did that. My, my problem is already... We, we can idolise money as though it will solve every single one of our problems. And being up close and personal and seeing sometimes the destruction that money can cause, you begin to realise that it's a cruel mistress. Money is a cruel mistress. It's a cruel idol. No one is ever truly happy. We've, we've been into... Um, Caleb was fortunate enough to go to an international school. What international school means is you learn to navigate some of the with some of the richest people in your locality i remember turning up to a house that on any given scale this house was um, it was over a million pounds they they uh, had the largest jigsaw in the world that was um on the ceiling and it had a chain and you brought down the largest jigsaw in the world to commit they had a row full of i mean it was the best party i've been to to be fair kids party they had a row full of arcade machines and every dad at this party was like on an arcade machine we were playing those physical like arcade machines they kid they had donkeys they had like um not just a jungle gym but a thing that went through the trees swimming pools gyms I, you name it and it was in this house it was there and i remember i, I walked away and i thought oh man yeah, everybody thinks the same thing. Jesus, if you release that to me, it would be such a blessing to the kingdom. House church, house, house church in that house would be off the chain. Like, how this Jesus, Jesus would be glorious. And um, Caleb got invited on a play date about three months later. Got invited on a play date to go to the same house. And uh, and the little boy said, um, uh, said, okay, just let me know who's going to pick. Him. I don't worry. A driver, the driver's going to come and pick him up. So driver's going to come and pick up Caleb for the play date from school. I said, okay. So I'll just come and meet just to make sure he's all right. Just come to the house and make sure it's okay. So driver comes, picks the boys up, take them to the house. I get to the house. It's probably two, three hours after school. Um, I walked into the house and I, it, it's almost as though the house could speak to you and tell you that it was lonely. It was weird. It was weird. I've never experienced it. I walked in. And it, it was, there was simply an echo about the place. And I walked around and um, I said, Caleb is in a room. He's in a ci the cinema room and they're playing a games console. And the wall was, the s they're playing on a console the size of this wall. And I said to the boy, I said, oh, I've, got, I've just come to pick up Caleb. Thanks for having him. Thing. And the boy's face, he looked at me. He said, please don't let him go. He said, it's so boring. I've got no... His older brother literally goes past us on a sedgeway in the house. I'm like, he's kind of here. What is happening here? This is just weird. And I have turned up, if any of you saw me in South Africa, I've turned up in a 1980s city golf manual clutch, kick it to start. Like, I've pulled into the most exclusive mansion in a car that looks like it is 
not going to make it up the drive, never mind <laughs> out of the house. And I, and I stand there and I, re I realise, like, the, the adage is definitely true. Um, this wasn't written by a Christian, but he said, for most people to live in the way that they want to, to achieve everything they want to at retirement, the main problem is that by the time they reach retirement and they've got everything that they wanted, it cost them their health, their family, and everything they thought they'd value to use all those things for in retirement. By the time you get there, you've lived in such a way to achieve the dream, you have to maintain such a lifestyle of work to achieve the dream that the irony is you can't enjoy the blessing for those of whom you are trying to achieve the dream for. If I'd asked that little boy then what he truly wanted, it would have been painful. It would have been painful. You could see it. God forbid, I don't want to judge a family so good, but, but you could literally see the pain on his face at the thought of his friend going because the highlight of his week was the driver would pick up another mate and you could come around and enjoy some of, you know, enjoy company with someone um, who's there because the house physically, literally felt lonely. And it made me just recall, you know, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you ask for. Just be careful what you wish for. We, we, those trappings in an et up can be just an end to themselves. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It checked me in on the riches and, 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 and poverty wealth. So I want us to be aware that, that it's an idol. The, the next question I would ask is, so what's the formula? What's the formula? Just tell me. Steve, your, your ram I, I don't teach as in linear. I, don't, I tend to ramble through the woods a bit when I teach on money. So people get frustrated with me. Just answer my questions. What's the formula? Do you believe in tithing or not? Well, you'll be pleased to know Roger Ellis is coming to preach on tithing, so I don't have to talk about that. Um, and the people just kind of like, mate, you're just thinking too deeply about this. Just tell us, like, you know, what, do, what can we actually do? I think the interesting thing about formula is that when, when Jesus meets the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one's good except God alone. You know the commandments, don't commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony and honour your father and mother. All of these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. Then Jesus heard this and he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. Simple formula, right? You don't have treasure in heaven, sell everything you've had, give it to the poor and come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Because they solely understood that blesses and wealth, uh, blessing and wealth was an indicator of God's provision for them. So they were like, well, if you're telling me he can't be saved, we thought he was the most blessed amongst us because God has given him all of this. Then who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what's impossible with man is possible with God. So let's take the formula. Great. Give everything we have. Give it to the poor. Uh, fulfill all righteousness. Don't commit adultery. Don't do the others. And, and we'll inherit the kingdom of God. Interestingly, though, you only have to move to Luke chapter 19 for a formula, if you're looking for a formula, to change. Jesus entered Jericho and passing through, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. This is a problem, a big problem for the people that are listening because a tax collector was often a Jew working for a Roman, so was considered a traitor. 
would disgrace the whole family because of the way they had operated and the way they got their wealth, was often accused of dishonesty and extortion. The synagogue alms box would not receive their money. I want to tell you, if a place of religious institution rejects your money, you're in a bad place. <laughs> you're in bad shape. If the church ever says to you, the money that you're trying to give us, we don't want, we can't take because of its lack of integrity, you've got more problems than trying to give that money away, right? That is what they're telling you. You've got a bigger problem to cook than the money, right? They weren't allowed to give testimony in, in court, right? So, so that's the setup you've got here when you come to these kind of parables. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and says to him, says to that person, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house at once. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. The people saw this and began to mutter, he's going to be at the guest of a sinner. So Zacchaeus stood up and said, Lord, Lord, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay him back four times the amount. If you're looking for a formula, what you expect Jesus to say to Zacchaeus is, Zacchaeus, did you not listen to when I spoke to the young ruler? If you want to give half your possessions to the poor, I said to him, he had to give 100% of his possessions to the poor. So he's falling foul if you're looking for a formula of the formula that was being given. Zacchaeus says, oh, anything, I'll pay it back. Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too has become, is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save what was lost. I find it fascinating that you go from one rich young ruler who everybody believes is blessed by God and is asked to give away everything to another who willingly says, I'll give away half and I'll repay those who have given. And one commentator says of Zacchaeus, he is the rich man who managed to find his way through the eye of the needle. I don't think God is... I think some... How would I phrase it? I think some principles are incredibly helpful. I don't think God is going to let you off the hook with formulas. I don't think you can play formulas with God. I don't think you can write God a check at the end of the month and discharge your responsibility. I don't think you can just say, you know, I, I, I just need to fulfill uh, all, all, uh, the obligation to be part of church. One person said to me once, you're, you, you, you're a part of one of those church where you have to pay 10% every month to be part of the membership, aren't you? I thought, wow, that's interesting. It's total non-Christian, no concept of church, but, but thought that the idea was I paid a 10% salary subscription fee to be part of my local church. It's an interesting mindset. I don't think that, that uh, when we're looking for formulas, um, we're going to find them. I think we can find guiding principles. I think we can find things that are incredibly helpful. I would wholeheartedly encourage you to give to your church. I ask a very different question. If you go into the Old Testament and you calculate what people would have given in terms of all of the offerings that they were asked to give, it's actually way more than 10%. What they would have given would have been more than 10%. Uh, I think you should wholeheartedly give to the vision of your church. I think you should wholeheartedly give. My issue is um, I don't start at 10%. I start with the question 100% of this is yours, how much of it should I give? I don't start with 10% is yours, how much can I get away with? Why? Because I think Jesus is interested in your heart's position because... This, we've already been told that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
we've already been told that money has a risk of being an idol. So this isn't about your bank account as much as it's about your heart. And the two need to be in sync with each other. And that's what we're, we are going for um, when we talk about it. So um, I've got some discussion questions for you. You'll be pleased to know because we all love talking about money in church. Um, the first thing is no one ever really wants to hear a sermon on money in church. The second is if you're asked to talk about it afterwards, you definitely don't want to talk about it. So first question is how much do you earn and what are you going to do with all your resources? No. <laughs> I know that I've been in, I, I, yeah, I haven't needed to be, I haven't needed to be in England for long to know that that would, would not go down well. The first question is um, what vision do you have for the resources that you have? I deliberately ask you that question because I think you'll struggle to answer it right now. I don't think many of us ask what vision we've got. You've got resources in time, uh, property, rental, bedrooms, you know, stuff, possessions. Um, you've got resources. No matter what phase of life you're in, you have resources. My question is, what vision do you have for your resources? Is your vision bigger than just for now or is it a vision for eternity? The second question I've got for you right now is, and then we'll come back in a second. I don't, Christy will put on some mood music, some <laughs> upbeat money music and, uh, while we discuss it. And the second question is, what worry or fear is money causing in your life right now? Because by naming it, you may actually have a little bit of a revelation in terms of what worry or fear are you carrying about my right now? So the first question is solely sort of positive in terms of what's your vision? What dream have you got for how you could cast vision for finance in, the next, in this year? We're right at the beginning of the year still. What vision do we have for our resources? And the second question is, what worry or fear is money causing us? Is that okay? Great. Christy, could you hit the mood music? I would suggest you talk in twos or threes next to you so we don't all move around all of that. So the first question, how's this landing for you? How's this topic landing for you? What vision do you have for your resources? And what worries do you have right now? There is water there by Emma, if anyone wants a drink of water. When the summer deal, I found pressure. Don't want to see the numbers. I want to see heaven. You say, could you write a song for me? I say, I'm sorry about you that I believe. When I go home, I tend to close the door. I never want to know. So sing with me. Can't you see? I don't have. I don't have I do it for the love I don't have I 
First we started out real cool Taking me places I ain't never been But now you're getting comfortable Ain't doing those things you did no more You're slowly making me pay for things Your money should be handling And now you ask to use my car Drive it all day and don't fill up the tank And you have the audacity to even come and step to me Ask to hold some money from me Until you get your check next week Trifling, good for nothing type of brother. Silly me, why haven't I found another? A baller, when times get hard, needs someone to help me out. Instead of a scrub like you who don't know what a man's about. Keep paying my bills, keep paying my telephone bills. Keep paying my automobiles, if it's baby, we can chill. I don't think you do, so.
hustling, good for nothing type of brother. Hustling me, why haven't I found another? Bills, can you pay my telephone bills? Do you pay my automobiles? If you did, then maybe we could chill. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, guys, thank you. And we're just going to do a Q&A now for, for about 15 minutes. And then um, I was just wondering if Richard and Katie, can you do a five-minute something? On, 
Well, not on Monday, just on, <laughs> on you guys. <laughs> we want you to sing to Abba, money, 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 with the, all the moves. <laughs> Is that okay if you just have a five-minute shout-out? From here. So we're going to do a Q&A first, so you've got ten minutes to have a think. Uh, has anyone got any questions? Quack. So Quox just asked, um, Sabbath, does it just only refer to work or could it refer to consuming as well? Good question, Quox. Um, yeah, so the person who I think writes best at the moment on Sabbath is a guy called Pete Scazzaro, um, and he writes the emotionally healthy leader or emotional healthy leadership. Um, it comes out of America. Uh, comes out of Brooklyn, I think he's based in Brooklyn, and he writes really well on Sabbath. And the point he makes around Sabbath and money is that the fact that you are prepared to stop earning uh, for a 24-hour period in your week is one of the biggest indicators that you fully trust God for your finances. So the fact that um, some of you physically would um, close from your farms for example, some of us physically close our places of work and, and don't earn. So he says that actually your Sabbath and your rest reveals that weekly you put your trust in that day and the rest of the week that God will um, provide for us. I, I've been thinking a lot about um, the fact that actually if you ask a farmer, as it seems we're told in the Levitical principles, every seven years to rest the land, there's a principle of resting the land for its own agricultural health. You rest the soil, you don't overwork the soil. But I kind of think, imagine how challenging that is when a farmer knows his only income each year comes out of the ground. And for that year, he's gonna leave it, see what comes up naturally, and even allow the poor to glean from it is a real indication of their heart position before God. I think it could be a beautiful challenge to also say, for one day a week, I'm not gonna consume. I'm not going to purchase and buy. I certainly grew up um, in a context where my family would never shop on a Sunday. I, uh, many people would. I, and I, I'm not arguing the rights or wrongs of that in terms of physically, is it wrong to shop on the Sabbath? I think if you as a community had a principle or individually as a family said, listen, on one day a week, we're not going to purchase, we're not going to buy. No, I think it does choose whatever you stop from just tunes you into how you're doing it. You're not just constantly doing it. So I think it could be a beautiful principle, but definitely Sabbath spending and rest are very connected. If you listen to Walter Brueggemann, um, he speaks about Sabbath and he talks about not consuming one day a week. And he talks about like starting a revolution of not consuming and really kicking the world into touch by saying, like, I am not going to do it. And he, he makes it sound really um, cool. <laughs> you know, he, he really does. He's like, let's start a revolution and one day a week, let's not buy anything and let's not get dragged into the culture of the world. And so I've, I've only watched the videos of him and it's quite crackly, but he's hilariously funny old guy and he really is brilliant talking about Sabbath. Another question, please. 
کنه Essentially, people would often credit us for living by faith. So people would say, people would introduce, they'd go, this is Steve and Diana, or this is Steve, is about to speak. Steve lives in South Africa, and for the last X amount of years, he's lived by faith. And I always think it's just a really weird word, phrase. I just think, I don't really understand that. Like, I think we all live by faith. Um, so would be principle one for me. Principle two would be, it's actually not entirely true. We lived by faith and fellowship. So what I mean by that is, if you look at where the majority of the money that sustained Diana and I for the last six years has come from, it's flown from the giving of other generous Christians, almost exclusively. In the example I gave, it didn't, it came from student loan company. But almost exclusively post then, we lived by the fellowship of the church, understanding its position in terms of global, its, its wealth. So I think that, Controversially, this is Steve Morris's opinion, I think that we default to the fact that the poor in our society are the responsibility of the politicians. So we, we both blame and rebuke politicians for not serving the poor, and then we are exasperated when they don't serve the poor. Um, I, I don't, I, I have no, there is nothing in me that thinks that the default responsibility for the poor should only be put at politics. I think the default responsibility for the poor is put to the church. So I think that just creates a different mindset. I don't go to politics to sort it because politicians will always flip-flop on how they sort it. They go to the church in what it can do to sort it. And I think that it has been a pain painfully hard to sit with people who... Diana was very good at this because... I was con I was very hard on like development. It has to be development and not relief. You have to have a sustainable plan to give it. And Dana would often just say to me, Steve, like they're just hungry today. Like I don't. So we would have this interplay of each other. Diana would want to give at traffic lights, and I'd say you can't give it a traffic light because there's no sustainable development plan. So we would we would in ourselves have a debate in the car about what we we're doing at the lights. Like, I mean, like, it was weird. Um, and so I think that the default position is the poor are the responsibility for the church globally. Um, I think that there aren't naturally easy answers. There are the, the answer to helping the poor isn't as easy as we think. When you start to help, you realize this is very complicated. It's not as easy as just providing resources for free. It's way more complicated than that. Um, I think if we, I get too convinced that everything needs to be about development, I actually need to sit with someone who doesn't have enough food for today and share my food. Um, and so, and for people that wrestle, for when we wrestle with this answer of there are a hundred stories of what seems to be unanswered prayer is a slightly different question that you're asking in that context. But I, for one, have had to cling on to the hope of eternity more often than not 
when I've, when I've had a desperate day, when I've walked around an informal settlement where there's just rampant abuse and the stench of poverty. Poverty is not attractive. It's not glamorous. It's not romantic. It's, it's, it's ugly. It's ugly. Very ugly. It's hard. When I've had those days, I've very often had to come home and remind myself that um, heaven is a banquet table. And, and it's an upside down banquet table. And many of us who believe we're blessed in this life will realize it was it will, it will fall into insignificance and in a snapshot of eternity. So I can only speak personally how I wrestle with it. But yeah. Sorry. Very good. <laughs> very, very good. Um, last question, if there is one. We're now going to put an offering plate round. No. <laughs> yeah, God is good. Uh, one of the things about our soup week is that we to learn a little bit about what it means to live on less so that we can share with others. You know, that is something we've just done this week. And that it really is one of the heart responses and the practical responses of cheering each other on to live more simply um, so that we can help the poor. Um, I'm going to hand over to Richard and Katie. And uh, it'd be great to hear from you. I'm only going to go out this way and back in just to check the potatoes. But Uh, we live in Turkey and we've been there for uh, six years. Um, I'm just going to share, um, I'm going to say thank you for something. I'm going to give a couple of very quick testimonies and then Katie's going to talk about a bit of vision for the future because we're going into a new season. So the thank you is thank you for giving during your soup week uh, because we're going to receive that money and then give it on to people who are helping refugees in Turkey. Uh, Again, the church in Turkey is um, helping refugees with some sanitation projects. There's more than three million refugees from Syria in Turkey, so it's a really relevant thing to give to. Thank you very much. Um, my testimony is, one testimony is that uh, earlier on in the year, uh, that was in 2019, we felt, oh, there could be time for a new season for us in Turkey, but we were quite... Uh, embedded, committed to a local church. Uh, we were part of the leadership team. Um, there was lots of needs and things we could do with that church. And we didn't quite see how we were going to move on into a new season because we felt we were kind of in that season. But then just recently in the autumn, some quite difficult things happened. Um, we were told to lead, leave that leadership team so now we're moving to a new place and God is giving us a new season. So thank God. Uh, yeah, he's, he's doing what he wants to do uh, in our lives, I think. And then the other thing is, well, then this means moving house. So we're going to move house on Saturday uh, to a new town, which is 30 kilometers from our existing town. Uh, and then, of course, moving house, it has these extra expenses like paying the estate agent, paying the removal company, paying the deposit to the landlord. And we didn't really have enough money in the account at the time to pay all those things. So I negotiated and kind of made a, a step of faith promising to pay some things that we didn't really, didn't really have the money to pay. 
And then we got a, a tax rebate just on the day from the UK tax office. We, um, just on the morning, we were going to go and see the house and agree to the house. Then I noticed, oh, this money's coming to our account. So thank God, that's a testimony of provision. Thank you, God. Right, yeah. what are we going to do in that new town? So the new place, we're moving into a ground floor flat um, of this like three floor house. Um, landlord and lady live on the top floor. The middle floor is currently empty. So we really want you to pray that we have some amazing neighbours move in. So whether they're people who are following Jesus already and who would want to join us for um, rhythms of prayer, meals together, this kind of thing, um, that would be great. Or if it's a Turkish family who would have children who Mo could play with and who we could get to know and who could find out more about Jesus through us being there. That'll be great. We don't know quite who it will be, but there's this amazing two flats, one on top of each other. And I walked into it and I was just like, wow, this is, we'd begun to pray about where we'd live. Rich and I walked around this town, looked at loads of different neighborhoods. And then we just, as we were just leaving, said, let's just look down this street. And it was a place that we hadn't seen. Um, and this place just seems good and uh the day the same day that we got this tax rebate that we weren't expecting to cover the costs um we'd said in the car on the way we really need a sign that this is the right place to be because we hadn't looked which said <laughs> i was the one getting cold feet. um so we, we said the royal we <laughs> that uh um we need a sign to confirm this is the right place and just as we were waiting for the estate agent to come we noticed there's a sign just on the side of the front door that says um in turkish allah verdi which means god gave <laughs> so uh, like a physical plaque outside our front door <laughs> yeah and uh, none of our turkish friends have ever seen a sign like that on a house in turkey like you see lots of blessings like for god to protect buses and things like that but never a god gave this house so we're happy about that there's no other believers in this town. It's a town of about 49,000 people. No other Christians as far as we know. Definitely no other church. But we believe a lot of people who will have open hearts. And we're going to pray. We ask you to join us in praying that God will introduce us to those people. Um, yeah, and particular prayer that Mo will find new friends in this new town. Because he's got lovely, lovely friends where we are now. So it's a big thing to leave to leave them. So if any of you want to come and visit, we've still got a spare room and a whole empty flat above. <laughs> come. Guys, just stay there for a second. Um, five years ago, and five years and two weeks ago, <laughs> um, the Morrises were just going to South Africa and Richard and Katie were going to Turkey and we... Steve spoke in there when we used to have um, core team. Steve spoke in there about revelation, I think, and then we had dinner together. And the, these two families were going off, and it's five years ago, and um, a lot has happened in that time. Um, so it just seems significant today that these guys are, are back here, you know, for another new, another new adventure for both of them. Um, we. Let's just raise our hands towards Richard and Katie. And let's pray. That's what I want you to pray for them. God gives. Just pray, God, just give what they need. That, that covers so many health, <laughs> neighbours, schools, Two pe three people, 
49,000 in a town. <laughs> God gives, God has given to this town people who um, belong to him. God gives. But really, just keep praying. Don't just half-hearted, just really call out to God to start a... Elijah said, oh, if uh, there's no other person, and God showed him seven over 7,000 who has not bowed their knees. Now you're saying that, well, you don't know whether they are Christians in their city. Just pray that God will show you there are thousands of people who wants to, whose hearts are open to the Lord. Father, we thank you for um, the nation of Turkey. We thank you for the Turkish people. And so and we just um, send again um, this family, God, to be lights, to be um, a light on the stand in that place, God, and to bring your kingdom there. Father God, we just pray that you will give to them all that they need. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Um, next month will be Janie Rubri and she's going to talk about uh, time. She's actually written a little book on time. So, um, yeah, she's going to be sharing with us. So thank you. Have a nice day.